Please turn your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 25. That was not good. Sorry. I was going to cough and I was trying to cover it, so it didn't do that. <coughs> Sorry, guys. Sorry, Zoomers. You're all awake now. That's good. Some of you are sleepy from a long, long week of work with Rancho 3M. Thank you for laboring to that effect, and thank you for being here this morning. I hope you're encouraged. Uh, so Matthew chapter 25, we, we have, as Mark mentioned, we've been preaching through the statement of faith, uh, the doctrines in our denominations, statement of faith, and today we'll be considering the final doctrine that's covered in that, which is the last things. Um, how does it end? That's the question we're going to attempt to answer this morning, and hopefully we will by God's grace. Um, now some are interested in the timeline uh, of how everything's going to end, um, and the scriptures definitely address this topic. Uh, but there's a lot of internal Christian debate on exactly how, how things pan out, the order of things, um, particularly around the millennium and the tribulation. And so there's a lot of, because it's, it's not like crystal clear. There, there's different passages and you're trying to reconcile it. So that is a legitimate issue to think through, wrestle through, look in the scriptures for, try to understand. However, our aim this morning and the stance taken in our, our statement of faith isn't to dive into all those issues, though obviously there is a place for that. There's a scriptural place for that. But our goal this morning is to focus on what's more definite and understood and agreed upon about the last things. Uh, because there is still plenty that we can say with certainty about how everything will end. So um, the only reason we have this certainty is because God has actually made it known to us in his word. So we, are, we, we, we have that privilege to, to hear from him today. Uh, reading the word that gives us certainty about what's to come. So let's read it together. We get to hear from Jesus himself today. Uh, Matthew 25, it's Jesus speaking. We're going to start in verse 31, and we'll read through the end of the chapter. So Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. This is the Son of God speaking. Verse 31 says this. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are Blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for, you from, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when do we see you a stranger and welcome you, or, or naked and clothe you? And when do we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those, on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and imprisoned, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it, to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let's pray for God's help in the preaching of his word. Lord, these are, these are heavy truths this morning. You speak to us about the final end of all things. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us an ear to hear what you have to say. We thank you, Lord, for recording this in your word for us to hear this morning. We thank you for the perspective that we gain from looking at how everything will end and how Christ will finish this, this, what, what he started, Lord. And so I just pray, work in our hearts, help us hear. And Spirit, you must be present, you must be active to change us, and so I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would make your word effective this morning in changing our hearts. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Fridays are an interesting phenomenon. Um, for many people, Friday is the last, you know this, Friday is the last day of work uh, before you get a, or, or school before you get a weekend, uh, you know, or at least a day or two off. And if that's not your case, then just adapt this analogy to whatever day you work and then you have a day off or two. Hopefully you have a day off or two. If you don't, it's a different sermon you probably need to hear. Um, but for Fridays, I am, I'm just, I am amazed by what energy I seem to have on Fridays that I just don't have the rest of the week. Um, it's funny, I do just as much work on Friday as I do the rest of the, rest of the week, and yet somehow I, I often wake up more refreshed and ready to tackle my day uh, than any other weekday. And that's true even if I got very little sleep Thursday night to Friday. Now why is that? Why are Fridays so much easier than the rest of the week? Well, and you know the answer. It's because the weekend's coming, right? On Fridays, I, I'm acutely aware that on Saturday, tomorrow, I get to sleep in. I don't have to get up to go to work tomorrow. I get to rest. I get a day off. And that knowledge about what's to come in the future gives me surprising vitality in the present. It, it, it boggles my mind that somehow tomorrow, what tomorrow will look like just makes me go, I can do today with vigor. Um, but that, that hope of Saturday gets me through Friday. Well, today we're, we're going to consider uh, a far better hope than Saturdays, a far better hope than a day off, than the weekend. What we're going to consider is a knowledge of things that can give us endurance, not just for Friday, but endurance for a lifetime. And here's the truth that can give us hope today, through this life, it's that Jesus will return as king. Now that may sound like a far-off truth that has little relevance to today, much less Monday. When you return to work, or school, or parenting tomorrow, and, and you just have to deal with the same people who wear you out and test your patience, it can seem like a very little comfort to know that, okay, sometime Jesus is coming back in the future and will reign. So what? How does that affect me today? Well, Jesus wouldn't have shared with us 
the truth about his return if he didn't mean for it to have an impact in our lives today. And it's my prayer that the Spirit would help us to understand this, these truths in such a way that we derive hope for our daily lives. Just as the promise of Saturday makes Friday endurable, so the return of Jesus can, in fact, give us endurance for this life. And my hope is that we will live today in light of the return of our King. So, to do that this morning, we're going to look at three events that unfold in a cosmic scene that Jesus describes to his disciples. And those three events are that Jesus returns as king, and that the righteous inherit the king's kingdom, and that the wicked receive the king's judgment. So let's jump right in. We're going to look at that first event. Jesus returns as king. We're going to read verses uh, 31 through 33 again. Let's look back at verse 31. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Now some context here. This is Jesus talking to his disciples about the end of the world. Uh, a chapter earlier, Matthew 24, the disciples asked Jesus how it's all going to end. They say, tell us, when will these things be, and, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So they're curious. You know, Jesus had just you know, referred to the temple being destroyed and building back up, and so they well, what, what's that going to look like, Jesus? What will it look like when you come back? So this, these two chapters, Matthew 24 and 25 of Matthew, record Jesus' response to the question that the disciples ask him. Now, quick footnote, this is before Jesus' crucifixion. So he spoke these words before he went to the cross. In fact, it's the last passage of teaching in Matthew before Jesus is betrayed and, and executed, before he's sent to the cross. So one commentator called this Jesus' last sermon. So what did Jesus say in his last sermon? What does he want the disciples to know before he goes to the cross? What does he want us to know about how everything will end? He wants us to know this, that he's going to return in glory. So note, note that, that Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. So obviously he's coming in glory, that's obvious from the text, but that title, Son of Man, is a loaded term. It's like a loaded baked potato. There's so much in there that you can just, <laughs> so much more than just a normal baked potato. So that title, Son of Man, it recalls the prophetic vision that Daniel had, uh, the, the prophet Daniel, from, from over 500 years earlier. We read about that in Daniel 7, 13 through 14. So this is where that term, Son of Man, it heralds back to this. Here's what Daniel says. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was prevented, uh, I'm sorry, presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So this is, this is Daniel's amazing description of Jesus coming in glory to this earth, but, and the disciples probably knew this passage, they knew the Son of Man is coming in glory, but what's interesting is this is not how Jesus came to earth the first time. 
He did not come in glory. No, Jesus' first coming was rather quiet. Jesus reiterates that what Daniel did say about him will indeed come to pass, but um, because, because his second coming will be what Daniel described. His second coming, his glorious return, stands in stark contrast to his first. And his first coming, Jesus was humble and mounted on a donkey. But in his second coming, Jesus is glorious and seated on a throne. In his first coming, Jesus arrived in an obscure town. We know it, Bethlehem, but that's probably only because Jesus was born there. According to Micah 5.2, Bethlehem was too little to be among the clans of Judah. It's this small nowhere land. That's where Jesus came. In his second coming, though, Jesus appears publicly before all nations. You can't miss it. In his first coming, Jesus was known by some merely as a carpenter's son. So they asked, is this not the carpenter's son? Where did this guy come from? In his second coming, Jesus will be known by all. And he'll be known as the king of the universe. In his first coming, Jesus suffered a criminal's execution. In his second coming, Jesus will execute judgment on his enemies. In his first coming, Jesus suffered the penalty for sin and he died. But... In his second coming, Jesus returns alive, having conquered the power of sin and death. So not only is that, well, not only will that be amazing to witness, but it's a great source for those whose hope is in Christ. It's not just great for Jesus, there's some good for us. Why? According to 1 John 3, 2, for those who are God's children, it says, we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When Christ comes in glory, that is as he is. That is who Jesus is, and we shall be like him. Jesus is coming back, and all God's people will be made like him. Our statement of faith says it this way. It says, Christ's personal, physical, and visible return is the blessed hope of all who trust in him. Why? When the dead in Christ are raised, their perishable bodies will be redeemed and made like Christ's imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual body. Those in Christ who are alive shall likewise be changed. So the dead will be changed. Those who are, alive, or who are already alive will be changed. And thus will all God's glorified people forever bear the image of their Savior. So are you weary of your perishable body? Are you exhausted from your chronic joint pain, back pain, migraines? Are you worn out by your food allergies that just take all this effort simply to prepare a meal that won't make you sick? Are you tired of your injury and the slow process of getting healthy again. Then hear this. If you're in Christ, this is not the end for you. Your perishable body will be replaced with an imperishable one. That is good news. Amen. Christ has conquered not only sickness, not only weakness. He has conquered the grave, and so will you if you're in Christ. Take heart. Await the blessed hope 
of the appearing of your God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But not only, it, gets, it keeps going, <laughs> not only will Jesus return in glory, he will return as king. And in our passage, Jesus describes himself as a king who will, quote, sit on a glorious throne. And this enthroned kingship, it includes two major roles, that of ruler and that of judge. So Christ as king is ruler and judge. Let's look at each of those. First, Jesus will return as ruler. Okay, so what does Jesus rule? Well, take a look at how he returns in verse 31. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. When Christ comes back, every single angel that exists is going to be present for that event. That, we learn from Revelation 5, 11 through 12, that this is essentially an angelic army worshiping around Jesus' throne. It says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. There is a huge angelic army worshiping Jesus. Thousands of thousands. Literally, that's millions. There's at least a million angels. I can't even imagine what that looks like. But you've got a countless millions of glorious angelic warriors who, who Joshua fell down on his face when he saw the, the messenger of the Lord, the angel of the Lord prepare. He saw one, and he was terrified. Anytime an angel appears in scriptures, typically people are terrified. There will be a million of these terri- terrifying warriors saying, Jesus alone is worthy. Jesus rules the entire heavenly kingdom, and his whole army is going to return with him. But it's not all that he rules. He does not just rule heaven. He also rules earth. Verse 32 of our passage says that before him, before Jesus, will be gathered all the nations. Now, this isn't just the nations who are alive at the time when Jesus returns. Um, It's both the living and the dead. John 5, 28 and 29 says that an hour, this is Jesus speaking, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his, Jesus, voice and come out. So right now, to get an idea of how many people that is, right now, apparently, there are about 7.8 billion people alive today. That's a lot. I can't quite guess that number, but that seems, seems like a lot of people. That's just a moment in time. That's right now. According to uh, the Population Reference Bureau, back in 2012, they estimated that probably about 107 billion people have ever lived on planet Earth. Um, now, I don't know if their math is right or what assumptions they use, but I think we can safely assume that there will be countless billions, thousands of thousands of thousands, of people present when Jesus sits on his throne to gather and rule the nations. So Christ sits enthroned not only as king of the heavens, but king of the earth. He is the cosmic ruler of the universe. But not only is the ruler, he is the ruler. He is also its judge. He is also the judge of both heaven and earth. He not only sits enthroned with infinite power, over all living beings, he couples that power with divine wisdom. 
to judge every single person. Verse 32 says, He will separate, after gathering all the nations, living and dead, a hundred billion people plus, he's going to separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, it's, I found this really interesting that Christ, this glorious king on this cosmic throne reigning over the universe, decides to describe himself as a shepherd. Like a shepherd's just a, someone who works on a farm, you know? What's, what's significant about a shepherd? Well, a shepherd, a shepherd knows the difference between sheep and goats. I had to Google the difference because I'm not a shepherd or I'm just illiterate. Um, but I learned, for instance, that like some goats can climb trees. That's pretty cool. Uh, sheep can't do that, apparently. Okay? There's a difference between sheep and goats, even though I think in, 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 in China they have like the year of the sheep slash goat, but it was a huge controversy, apparently, because they have just one term for both species. They're, they don't distinguish. A shepherd can distinguish. A shepherd knows the difference. That's a sheep. That's a goat. A shepherd is the most qualified individual to know the difference between sheep and goats, and that's who Christ is. You see, Christ isn't just a high and mighty cosmic ruler who's unacquainted with his subjects. No, he's a shepherd who intimately knows the sheep who are his and the goats who are not. And we'll get to hear soon what he says to both, but for now, fear this king, honor this ruler, Submit to this shepherd. He's the most powerful being in the universe, and he's the most qualified to judge you and to judge me and to judge every single person in human history. And that's exactly what he's going to do. He will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left, and he will publicly pronounce judgment on both. So let's see what he has to say. Leads us to event number two, is that the righteous inherit the king's kingdom. Read with me again, uh, starting in verse 34. It says this. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So he speaks to the sheep. And who are these sheep? How does the king identify these sheep? It's obviously good to be a sheep in this analogy. Well, at first read, we can think that the sheep are primarily characterized by all the good works that Jesus refers to. There's a, there's a, there's a number of them. It's, it's rather re repetitive here. The feeding and the welcoming and the visitations. And it's certainly true that the righteous, which is who the sheep are, that they do good deeds. And, and there's, there, there's a large part that's a large point uh, you know, of, of Jesus' teaching here. We're going to look at that more in a minute. But the fundamental identity of the sheep, those whom Jesus will richly reward, as we're going to explore later, 
their fundamental identity is that they are blessed. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Now, just so we don't misunderstand that, this isn't like, oh, you did something great, so bless you, laddie. You know, it's not, well, you're just such a great person. Oh, you know, just, oh, God bless you. God, just uh, thank you so much for that meal I really needed right now. No, this blessing, this blessing is undeserved. The kingdom, note, no, no, and we can get this from the text, note that the kingdom that they're going to inherit, that the sheep will inherit, when was it prepared for them? Not after all the things they've done for Christ, but from before the foundation of the world. From before the foundation of the world, no humans existed. No one had done either evil or good. And yet God in his mercy chose some to be blessed. Some who would inherit a kingdom that he planned before he even created planet Earth. Even the word inherit, come inherit the kingdom uh, prepared for you. The word inherit communicates a sense of undeservedness. A baby girl inherits her mother's blue eyes. She didn't have a say in the matter. A, a prince inherits his, his father's kingdom, not because he earned it, not because he proved himself worthy, but simply because he was born into the royal family. He just was he kind of lucked out. Well, as believers, we're born into a royal family. We're born again, one that includes an amazing inheritance, and, and not, not one that we've earned, uh, but one that we've received nonetheless. You see, our standing before God as believers isn't based on the merits of good works. The whole reason that Jesus came the first time on earth was to deal with our sin that we couldn't deal with. Our standing before God is based on his mercy. So let us not think that we somehow earn God's favor or his blessing or that we deserve the kingdom. <laughs> and for that matter, let us not think that we can somehow uh, earn his disfavor. Once we have it, we can't, we can't get away from it. It's his decision. We're merely sheep who are blessed by a heavenly and loving Father. That's humbling. That ought to humble us. That ought to produce joy in us because it is independent of our good works that we are blessed and that we have an inheritance prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. So may it produce that joy. And that's not the only thing Jesus says about the sheep. Yes, their fundamental identity is that they are blessed. But the sheep are also, they are characterized by an act of faith. So we see that in the variety of ways that the sheep, that the righteous, show hospitality and kindness toward, toward others. They feed the hungry, they welcome the stranger, they visit the sick. And the common denominator of these people, the hungry, the stranger, the sick, uh, they, they're all needy. That's the common denominator. They have a need that, 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 that requires being filled. The, the hungry need food. The stranger needs welcomed. If you felt like a stranger, you know what that feels like. I need, I need to be welcomed into this environment. The sick, they need company. They need someone to make them chicken noodle soup <laughs> and bring it over to them. So to be a sheep is to be a person who meets the needs of others. That's what characterizes the sheep. So that looks like providing food for a, for a college student who's either unable or simply just too lazy to make himself some food. It looks like having someone you don't know very well over to your home. It looks like providing rides to people who are injured and can't get to their hospital appointments without any help. It looks like helping someone move. It looks like babysitting for a tired mommy. These acts characterize the sheep. 
And these acts of kindness are often not so glorious. Um, and, and in his commentary on this passage, Douglas O'Donnell writes that, quote, these works of love are lowly, unspectacular, and seemingly non-religious. It's just giving someone some food. It's listening to someone who has to, who just needs to get something off their chest. Now those acts may seem small and insignificant to us, but they do not go unnoticed by Jesus. Rather, Jesus says that these acts done to even one of the least of these, my brothers, he counts as done unto himself. My brothers, that, that reference to my brothers, most likely it refers to, to Jesus' fellow brothers and sisters, those who are identified with him by faith. And Jesus is saying that the smallest act, the smallest act of kindness done to such a one is counted as an act of kindness done to Jesus himself. That's remarkable. This, we, we sang about that this morning, and Mark even alluded to, well, spoke directly to this when he shared the, the passage this morning, that this, this, this king of the cosmos, this glorious eternal ruler, identifies with the person that we deem least significant, or in some cases most annoying. <laughs> and yet, he identifies with them, and he will therefore reward us for the smallest act of love done towards such a person. Jesus himself said this in Matthew 10, 42. He said, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. What a generous king we serve. He sees and knows what we do in secret, and he will publicly and eternally reward those who follow him. So do you work in obscurity? Do you labor for thankless hours at home or at work or at school? Do you fight daily to have patience with the little people in your home? <laughs> and that can take a lot of patience. I'm learning that. Jesus sees every single good work you've done, and he will reward you for it if you're in Christ. The sheep were surprised by the king's verdict. They didn't realize how many seemingly insignificant acts of love Jesus noticed and received as unto himself. If you're a believer in Christ, you are going to be surprised at Jesus' verdict on you. You may serve in the most unseen ways, but he will honor you before the nations. So take heart. Do not grow weary in doing good. Look forward with hope and joy to the day when you will be honored by a gracious king. We don't even have time to dig into all the depths of the, of the great kingdom that we'll inherit. Because while rewards are great, they're not the only thing we're going to receive, um, which is just amazing. But just touch on a little bit, what we will receive is, 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 is a bountiful inheritance. It's, it's full of life. It's devoid of sin and mixed motives and suffering. And, and it includes perfect communion with this God who loves us and seeks to reward us for the smallest act that we do. 
our statement of faith celebrates these truths in this way. It says, those saved by Christ, whose names are written in the book of life, will be welcomed into the joy of their master and richly rewarded for every good work done in his name. God's glorified people will inherit the kingdom from which all sin, sorrow, suffering, and death will be banished. Believer in Christ, that's your eternal fate. Praise God for this, this blessed hope that we have to look forward to now and enjoy forever. May it sustain us day by day as we live faithfully for Jesus. When we go back to Monday, you know, I have five days of work in a place where my employer does not understand me, or I'm with this person who complains a lot, or I have a, a sick child and I just don't know what to do about it. We can remember that Christ sees and knows and remembers everything you do that, that is an attempt at, at honoring him. That, Lord, it's in perfect patience, but help me just be calm right now. He sees that. He's going to reward that. May that carry us through each day. It's not the only verdict that King Jesus gives. He gives a verdict on the sheep, but he also gives a verdict on the goat. So that's our final event, is that the wicked... They receive the king's judgment. Let's read verse 41 again through the end of the chapter. Verse 41 says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will answer, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So this is Jesus speaking now to the goats, those on his left. What's their identity? What's the identity of the goats? Well, Jesus describes them who are cursed. He describes them as cursed. The implication is that they are cursed by God. You see, God's posture, this, this, this cursing is not undeserved. This, God's posture towards sin and sinners is wrath. He is holy and he cannot tolerate sin. Those who are cursed, they're sent into an eternal fire that's prepared for the devil and his angels. The devil and his angels are God's enemies. Jesus speaks in no uncertain terms here. If you're not a sheep, you are an enemy of the throne. Unrepentant sinners are as much God's enemies as the devil and his angels are. They are all judged in the same way. That's sobering. But it gets even more weighty. King Jesus, who denounces these, these goats as cursed, he has an eye of scrutiny on all of their actions. It's remarkable to me here. He has an eye of scrutiny on the sheep for their good. He has an eye of scrutiny on the goats for justice. What's remarkable to me is that in, in Christ's verdict on the goats, he doesn't list vile acts of wickedness. He doesn't condemn the goats for drunkenness or sexual immorality or murder, though those are wrong and worthy of condemnation. No, Jesus here condemns them for their lack of action and their lack of love. 
what's on display here isn't the evil that they've done, but the good that they have failed to do. That's exactly the point uh, in Jesus' parable of the, uh, of the servants with the talents, which he tells right before our passage. In that parable, a master gives his three servants money. The currency is a talent. Um, and, and he gives it to, the, to these servants to invest while he's gone on a long journey. The first two, they make profits on their talents. And, and they're going to be rewarded by their master. But the third, however, failed to do that. Here's what Jesus said about the third servant. Look up in verse uh, 24. Verse 24 of Matthew chapter 25 speaks to this story. He says, He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. At least that. I've lost my place and I apologize. Notice here that the third servant, he didn't, he didn't take that talent and go spend it on, on, on you know, alcohol and make himself drunk or, or to make himself rich. He didn't, he didn't take this and, and run with it or, or flee, you know, flee his master. He just didn't invest it or trade it. He didn't do what he was supposed to do. Yet the, the, the master, even though this servant hasn't gone off on some binge, the master still calls this servant wicked and slothful. This servant belongs to this master, master sorry, and, and, and he's to work for him. He's to provide a profit. This servant isn't free to do whatever he wants to do. He belongs to the master. He is accountable to the master. He's supposed to provide a profit to the master. So it is with Jesus and the goats. Jesus condemns them for their lack of love and the lack of care for their brother. He's saying, you're my servant. I have given you life. And you are accountable to use it for my glory. And when you don't, you are slothful. When you don't, you are wicked. You have not done what I created you to do. Jesus is saying, because you didn't love your neighbor perfectly, you are an enemy of God. That may seem harsh but it aligns perfectly with God's standard of righteousness. Jesus summarized God's law in Matthew 22 when asked about the great commandment or what was the great commandment in the law, Jesus replied, he said this, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Jesus is saying, you want to uphold God's perfect standard? Okay. You want to keep the law? All right. Then love God and your neighbor perfectly. That's the standard. Perfection. That's an incredibly high bar. In fact, it's an impossible standard to reach. It requires perfection. God's standard for joyful fellowship with him is perfection, and that includes perfect love for one's neighbor to feed the hungry to help the sick. The consequence 
for imperfect love is judgment. Instead of being welcomed into Christ's presence like the sheep are, the goats are told to depart from Christ's favorable presence. They're banished to an eternal, fiery punishment along with the rest of God's demonic enemies. They're sent to a place that, according to Matthew 25, 30, will be full of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Our statement of faith summarizes the judgment of the wicked this way. It says, On the last day, all people will appear before Christ, who is the judge of all. Those who suppressed God's truth in unrighteousness and did not obey the gospel of Christ will suffer the wrath of God and be justly cast into the hell of fire with the devil and his angels. There they will experience eternal conscious punishment according to their sins. Hell is terrible, and if it seems too harsh, it's not because God isn't unfair or because God isn't fair. It's because we don't understand the magnitude of our sin against the holy God. Both sins of commission, of, of, of lust and greed and lying and doing the wrong things, but also sins of omission, failing to love our brother perfectly. On the final day, the unrighteous, they are surprised. They are surprised by the king's verdict. They didn't realize the incredibly high standard that God has for fellowship with him. They didn't realize that when they failed to love and care for their neighbor, they were actually failing to love and care for Christ. If you're not a believer in Christ, I urge you, do not be surprised on that day to hear a verdict of guilty. If you think you're doing fine because you're a pretty good person, or because you haven't done very, mad, very many bad things, or because you've been uh, raised in the church and going to the church your whole life, if you think that's why God is cool with you, think again. His standard is so much higher than we realize. And we could never, we could never do enough to be, enough good works to be right with God. The solution isn't to try harder and to be better. It's to repent of our sin against a God and to call upon the Savior who was the only one to perfectly love God and his neighbor. Christ was the only one who could meet the standard of God's, uh, uh, his standard of, of a perfection of, of communion. He's the only one who could do it and he's also the one who died for your sins so that you don't have to. So you don't have to strive to be right with God through doing good works, through meeting the needs of the poor and the needy. The king of the cosmos does not want you trying harder to earn the favor of God. And that's true if you're not a believer yet, and it's true if you're a believer. It does not honor him for you to try to earn his favor. You can't. The only way to obtain favor from God and enjoy the eternal blessings promised by those who are blessed by God is to turn away from your sins and to trust wholly in Christ. It's the only solution. If you do that, you will see, God will see you rather, through the lens of Christ's perfect life. That's how he sees those who put their faith in Christ. He sees you through the perfect life of Christ and he will reward you. He will then no longer look at all your deeds of unrighteousness or lack of righteousness. He will look at you perfected by Christ and say, there's some good in you. I made some good in you and I will reward you for that. I hope you do that. I hope you put your, your faith in Christ and I'd love to talk with you more. If you're not sure about this, or if you think, I'm not trusting in Christ, or I've been in church all this, all this time, I'm not sure. If you've repented of your sins, for those who have already repented of their sins, and are putting their hope in Christ, marvel at the mercy of God.
who has in Christ, he has changed his eye of scrutiny toward your sin to be an eye of gracious love and abundant blessing. Celebrate the love of the king who rescued you from eternal punishment to give you eternal life. And share this joy with others. Tell them about the amazing blessings and hope that you have in Christ that carry you through the daily grind, knowing you have a gracious God who has his eye on you, who sees you tomorrow morning and says, you're made perfect in Christ, but I'm going to reward you for the smallest act of good done in my name. Invite undeserving sinners like yourself to enjoy the favor of a benevolent king. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for speaking to us. We thank you for giving us a vision of what's to come, of knowing that there will be justice for all who fail to obey your perfect law and who are trying on their own to be right with you. And we thank you, Lord, that you come to show mercy on those who acknowledge that we have no right to be in your kingdom. We have no right to have fellowship with you. And yet, we come at your invitation. We come because Christ has already come to us and has died for our sins. So Lord, we praise you. We thank you for what you have done and what you have accomplished and what you have earned for us. And I pray, the Lord, that you would, you would bring us through every day uh, aware of what's to come and give us hope for the daily grind. And I praise the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and praise the name of Jesus and sing of his eternal reign.